Hey, Mommy. I'm going to be on an interview for the next bit, so you can't ask me. I can't ask you about the dog? Yeah, or what else can you not ask me about? Uh, I don't know. You asked me about a lot of shit. Yeah, which poop did you want? Oh, did I pick up the doggy poop? Which one did you pick up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I hit record. This is the JWN Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Meanstead. On today's show, we have an actor of screen and theater, and I think he's invading our minds. Please welcome Patrick Arnheim. Now, the bio information I have on you might be quite outdated. It's so outdated. That's why I love it. That would be fun right there. Because uh, it basically says that you attained... I'm sorry. You attended the esteemed Circle in Square Theater School in Broadway on Broadway. Yep. Yes, sir. You were born in New Jersey and graduated from Princeton High School. Barely so. You also attended Old Miss on a theater scholarship <laughs> before More going like to I, Circle. Right. I, I like to think like I stopped by Old Miss. Like I made a, I've stopped by there for a couple of years. But yeah, I did attend in quotations. Sure. So, so you're a Jersey guy and you got a taste of Mississippi. Yeah. You went back and to New York the, the, and then you came back down south. That's that that's a let's just start right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's start with um, let's start with Jersey. Like you grew up in Jersey. Yeah, I was born in uh Summit, New Jersey, Overlook Hospital, which by the way, Meryl Streep uh was also born at. I don't think that's a coincidence. No, I, um, I think I think uh that you know, you were destined to follow, follow in her footsteps. My parents were I, – I, I've always considered myself a mutt because my dad it, was from Queens, New York and from a family of four. He had a sister, his two parents. They all grew up in what is probably the size of my current bedroom right now. There were no no actual beds. The kitchen was the living room, was the bedroom. Uh, Etc. And so, on the flip side of that, five years younger, my mom was growing up in Knoxville, an only child, uh, you know, of a big time lawyer, and she had debutante balls and just the polar opposite experience of what what my how my dad was living. And so, my mom always thought such an extraordinary woman because in 1961, when Many women were not. She went to New York to go work in industry, worked for a company called Inmont. And my dad met her on her tour of the building, I believe. He had an Austin Healey he saved up for three years. So he had a nice car and probably ate like a half a meal a day. So he impressed my mom with that car and they went out on dates, da 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 as they got married, however many years later, they started to move further and further away from New York and then started having kids. So I was born 20 minutes outside of New York City, but was really brought up, you know, with one parent, uh, tales of the grit of New York City and my mom who has families had farms named after them and stuff. It was just totally different. So, and uh, Wait a second. Yes. Wait a second. I'm I'm kind of hung, hanging up. I'm, I'm we'll get back on track. I promise. Oh, I so promise. I, I I just love the idea that your dad grew up, um, you know, in a tiny apartment, spends 
all of his money on a nice car. Oh yeah. And that shit worked. Like he oh, landed yeah. he landed a babe because well, of his else. car. He actually was engaged before he met my mom, saved up the two years before he saved up for the Austin Healy for an engagement ring. The woman says yes. She ditches him after a month. And my dad knew people enough such that in New York, they were like, you want that ring back with or without the finger? And my dad was like, you know, keep the ring, keep the ring. And so I always grew up knowing about this woman and that the next three years, you know, he probably ate ketchup packets for dinner, but the man had a red Austin Healy. And my mom kept getting stuff because she was Miss Debutante. She was getting fresh fruit shipped to shipped to Grand Central Station. And all the men in Inmont were like, hey, uh, let me drive you to go get those pineapples. And uh, one time my, my dad was the guy who drove her. That's awesome. That's yeah. so – I mean that is like old school, like back to the future type – Yes. Like, yeah, this is what you, you kind of, yeah, it's a storybook. That's so fantastic. So how many, how many brothers and sisters do you have? So I have two brothers. My oldest brother was born a woman, but a transgender man, uh, is married and has children, lives in Chicago. I have a younger brother who's an actuarial mathematician, and I have no idea what that means. Wow. And he lives in uh, Indianapolis. So I'm the middle child. So I was always like, look at me, mom. And I was tinkling in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So now you got, you grew up in Jersey. You had this total like dichotomy of, of parental figures. Yeah. Um, and obviously like you had, th- I, I love when you have siblings that are completely different in every aspect than, oh. than you, because it's just, you know, it's the same two people who raised them and they came out like three completely different people. That's, you know, that's in, fact, interesting. in fact, I learned much later on when I went to real, uh, to a the real acting school where we really got down into a basement and dug into ourselves for lack of a better way to put it much more interesting to the teachers than like where you're from or your parents was your siblings and where you were placed you know, were you a middle child? Were you an only child? Were the youngest, etc.? Had so much importance about what type of person you became. Now, I still don't get that. No, but I sure, <laughs> I sure, I sure buy into it. And I'm the middle child, so for me, it was always like, no one's looking at me, you know, type of thing. And yeah, that became an actor. You know, put the camera on me, Doc. Well, one of the things, like in doing this podcast, I'm. I'm not just focusing on, but I am trying to kind of, because it's just an interest of mine, focus on creative people. Um, because I, I, I do want to find out what that string is. It's not like, I don't think it's an attention seeking thing. I no, just think no. that there's a, there's something in people who are creative that they want to connect with other people in a, in a, in a different way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, in a I think creative it's a, way. It's a string of things. And for me, I was creative as a real little kid. Now, we didn't have iPads and all these things to distract you with your fingertips, which are, can be fantastic, I'm sure. For me, I had G.I. Joe's, Star Wars figures, He-Man's, and basically a life of quarantine. My parents worked. Did you build so, forts for them? 
Yeah, I had stories that went on in my head that can continue <laughs> for months on end. And meanwhile, when I'd go to a school setting, I was the shortest, the littlest kid. So this creativity, I was sort of bubbling up in my own room. I would, to get anyone to, really all I really wanted was attention from the pretty girls. And I, I came up to the pretty girl shins. So I figured if I made the dudes laugh, then the girls would laugh and then maybe maybe I'd have a chance. But I think it stemmed from these stories that I would do all in my head. You know, even to the point where I was a decent student up until up until about fifth grade. And in those first few years, they would say, Well, how about Patrick? Well, he's a very nice boy, but he stares out the window all class. Now, when I call on him in those early years, especially, I knew the answer because it's second through fifth freaking grade. But, you know, later on, I didn't know what the answer was because I was staring outside and daydreaming. Right. And so I always had a story in my head. Sometimes I'd run home after school to write down these war movies or whatever, but they all had love and, you know, just sort of all these things. And I didn't know where to flex that muscle around certain friends that, you know, we want to lo- try to find their dad's dirty magazines. It was a totally different thing. <laughs> there was nothing better, though, at that time. I think you were about close in age to me, probably a little bit younger. but I'll be 45 in one Oh, my week. goodness. Okay. So, yeah, we're very close um, in age. And the, the uh, when you're, like, in that preteen just starting to get interested in girls era um, mm. coming across like a dumpster in someone's driveway. <laughs> you're like, we're coming back here at night. <laughs> we're going to find yeah. the playboy stash. Oh yeah. Or no, I, behind I, a, a, a card store, <laughs> a magazine store. Yeah. Well, we had a boys club. Uh, maybe fifth grade. In order to join, you had to do all these things. One of them was steal something from some drugstore. I don't remember in Westfield, New Jersey. I stole a box of Fruit Stripes gum, which was like the best 10 seconds gum tasting ever. And then it went straight to rubber. <laughs> and then, yeah. But I felt so guilty that I had stolen this whole box that I think in like an alleyway maybe 20 feet from from this drugstore, I put the box of uh, Fruit Stripes gum in the alleyway and kept running. You know, I didn't want to have this stuff on me. Yeah. And, you didn't, you uh, didn't want that stain the on other your conscience. One guy had to steal a penthouse, and, you know, the other kid had to, you know, drink Tabasco sauce, whatever it was. And then once we all joined the club, I remember we were like, what do we do now? You know, we had nothing to do. <laughs> Yeah, but, um, I remember a phase of, of growing up where it was constantly building forts in the back oh, yeah. of, in the back of our friend's uh, house, like just behind the garage. We'd have find scrap lumber and build these things, and it's like, yeah, once you built it, you're like, hmm. now what? <laughs> <laughs> now I got to go home. It's dinner. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I I was you know that, again. That's sort of these bad years. I started to get lost right around those creative years i also was trying to make girls laugh at school and so i got caught up in a crowd of kids that stole hood ornaments and you know joined that boys club you can thank me i got arrested i got arrested on april 3rd 1986 which was easter of 1986 was april 3rd 
for vandalizing the school's windows. You know, so at 10 years old, my parents were like, where's Patrick at Easter dinner? And I was locked up, you know, so I really, (laughs) I really was different than my other siblings in so many ways. My poor parents. I I wonder if that's just a time of growing up in the the mid 80s up into the mid 90s, like that whole span of time. I I just think might have been the last hurrah of the like the derelict suburban like kid yeah because you know we still we still had big wheels yeah we we still made dirt jumps for our bikes that ended in a glass pile (laughs) and you know now you're this 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 just wouldn't happen anymore yeah if it snowed and they bulldozed all this ice snow somewhere you'd make this into a huge sled leap and everyone broke their coccyx i mean it was unbelievable (laughs) dude we used to sleigh ride down (laughs) the storm drain in the local sewage dump sump yep yeah yep and 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 it kind of had a jump in the middle of it so you might clear like 30 feet of air and land on an ice pond that may or may not break underneath you yeah I, I think we might have been that last generation of, of kids who didn't have we internet, like, phones, like the whole nine. Right. And so your parents couldn't find you. And it turns out, you know, a few years later, and we found out in high school when like Nirvana came out that we were gener- we were Generation X. And we were the first generation that was going to make less than our parents. And I thought, I don't care, you know. And unfortunately, that apathy was what the whole generation felt. Now, I brought that sort of bad attitude with me just to come back to acting um, all the way through junior year of high school. I missed 80 of the 180 school days or however many 180 some odd school days and had had to sign a contract with the vice principal saying I would attend certain percentage in my senior year and I kind of laughed at him because, you know, he did, you know, he liked me in his own little weird way. I said, you really want to see me for a fifth year, Mr. Snyder? And he kind of giggled. But I signed it anyway. And uh, and I went out for Our Town senior year because they rehearsed after school. So that meant I had to stay all day. <laughs> yeah. And so I stayed all day and played Constable Warren. And maybe three rehearsals in, that's all I ever wanted to do for the rest of my life until we're speaking right this moment. So let me ask you a question. During that time when you, you, so did you want to become an actor and you joined up or was it just like something to do to kind of get through that year? I remember specifically, now I had of course, because, um, and it wouldn't have been the case if I had just one or, or parents because I had this weird mix we sang in church choirs and we rode horseback and we played violins and pianos, you know, sort of like they call these uh, trophy kids now and that they get a surface of a little bit of everything. Yeah. But once we did find something that interested us as kids, we would dig in. And for my brother, that was, you know, horseback riding. Maybe for my older brother, it was violin. For me, I love these TV acting classes. Now, I used to, in my daydreaming... With Like I was talking about earlier about playing figures, one of those daydreamings, like writing stories, was drawing pictures. And I would, I would, sure enough, draw like a movie poster, rated R, White Blossom with Patrick <laughs> Arnheim. And it had to have nudity, I'm sure. 
And oh, as did every but, uh, movie in the eighties. Yes, I'm sure it had nudity. It had that N in TV Guide, which, by the way, that N was huge. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I guess I had like sort of those daydreams as a younger kid. But seriously, as even in this small part as Constable Warren and going to Princeton High School where Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors had just come out of and John Lithgow is an actor and Christopher Reeve is from town and you're sort of surrounded by all this stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. You know, I'd already been Mr. Class Clown. Why not sort of put it to more use? And I did every play that year. And That's by the end of the year, I was nominated. I didn't win because <laughs> I shouldn't have won. Um, something that's called the Golden Key Award at my high school, which I think the reason I was nominated, that's like a real exemplary student. I wasn't that. But I think it was, the nomination was like a nod to me turning it around a little bit. Yeah. So they, they, they basically said, you know, if, if your schoolwork – matched the dedication or not even matched was half the dedication you were giving towards the acting. You, you could have walked away with this award, but we want you to know that you were in the running. (laughs) Yeah. And that we see, you know, if you, you're right. And, or if you had done four years of your senior year version of yourself, which I'm not saying I got fantastic grades, but, but you know what, when I started to take something seriously in high school, I did notice the teachers took me more seriously. And then you're not, you, you don't start at a level where you're under. You know, that happens to kids all the time. You're walking into class, maybe it's how you look or who you're related to. And you're either a step above this next student next to you or a step behind. And that happened to me throughout my schooling. Do you, do and you somehow, reme- I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, I was just going to uh, say, do you remember one specific person? Or that said something that made you like that validated what you didn't even know you thought like somebody said something to you and you were just like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I I like. Yes. This gives me a reason to do this. Like you said, it was 80s, 90s. So you were allowed to be strangled by your teacher um, back then. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. in my junior year in high school my french teacher mr ponsin kicked me out of class for something and in the in the little i shouldn't say his name in the little foyer basically grabbed my shoulders in a very ag- aggressive way it was a fight with my french teacher now i did theater i had to drop out of that class and take it again the next year after Mr. Ponsin had seen me in a musical called Kiss Me Kate, I walked into class. And mind you, I wasn't great at French, which was what the, the aim was in class. So Mr. Ponsin starts talking all this French, but I can hear my name in there. And so I say to this woman, Anne Stewart, like, Anne, what is he saying? I could hear my name, and it's all in French. Um and she said, he's saying, you're a fantastic actor. And oh, if anyone hasn't seen Patrick Arnheim and Kiss Me Kate, to rush to do it. And I thought, this French teacher's okay. <laughs> and awesome. uh, he was so nice to me the rest of the year. I ended up learning a little bit of French. I applied myself. And, and yeah, so I would, I would see that. And on the flip side, maybe years before that, I'd walk into a class and Miss Hollihan would say, oh, you're Boyd's brother. And I'd say... Because they just had the fantastic student boy that took their class. And I'd say, oh, yeah, wait till you get a load of this. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's see how much you say that to my younger brother. <laughs> oh boy, my poor younger brother. All right, so you're in high school. You did all these plays. You kind of turned your life around. What was yeah, the transition I, I, like uh, uh, after that, after high school? Right. So we all, everyone went to college, and especially where I'm from, a third of the students at a public school got into Ivy League schools. And when I say Ivy League, I'm including Stanford and, and Berkeley. Sorry, sorry, Ivy League, but I'm including those two. <laughs> so like a third, a third of our uh, students got into that. It was, and so leading up to that, it's just sort of the way you went at Princeton High School. You went to college. Well, <laughs> the one college I got in was Ole Miss because I had a pulse. <laughs> and I was from New Jersey. I'm sure it's much more difficult now, University of Mississippi, if you're listening. But at the time, that's all I needed. I was a living man. And it was pre-internet. It was microfiche. So I had, you know, they hadn't seen someone from New Jersey and I had not seen them. But I visited the school the summer before because I had my mother's family. We went to a wedding, went to see Oscar. It's this beautiful oasis of a town. Um, and, you know, so much history, both incredibly negative and, and some great positive literature history. William Faulkner is from there. Currently Grisham's all over town. You'd see Michael Stipe walking through or Tracy Chapman walking through Oxford. And so it was a cool place to be. I just didn't do very well because all of my aim was theater and then, like, you know, Western Civ, I would drop over the phone or something. And so I didn't do that well. In those summers between my two years at Ole Miss, I auditioned for New York schools with my aim being Circle in the Square. And I got in the circle, and that was it. So, all right. So give us a very – because I am not in the acting world, so I, I'm not familiar <laughs> – with Circle in the Square, but it, it does seem to be like a very prestigious school for acting. Yeah, so... What would you compare it to for like the layman? Like, You know, you know what I'd compare it to is like a buffet for actors. Because there's a lot of schools that are of one thought. You're all Stanislavski's method. You're all... Uh, all Stella Adler's technique... My teachers were working actors. I would say 60% of the teachers at Circle also taught at Juilliard. And so I was basically getting a conservatory uh, education with Juilliard teachers. And, I and so, so one teacher might be very much of what might be Stanislavski's method. And then the next teacher might say, well, don't ever use Stanislavski's method. And why I like that as an actor was – at a buffet, you go up and you try deviled eggs and you try the this and the that. So when you go up for seconds, you know what you liked, but never for lack of trying everything. And so this was the one school that had that variety, had the, you know, those teachers. And, you know, sometimes at night, I had a teacher passed away about five years ago named Jacqueline Brooks. And so for the first couple of months of Jackie Brooks's class, I was like, yeah, you know, we're all going to breathe and sit up tall and then go into the work, whatever it was. That night I go home, I'm living in New York and there's a James Caan movie and James Caan is playing tennis with Jacqueline Brooks. Wow. And I'm like, my goodness, my jaw dropped. And so from that day forth, 
anything Jacqueline Brooks said was gospel because, yeah, she's telling this and that and might tell you a funny Woody Allen story, but I just saw you play tennis last night with James Caan. <laughs> and, and, and at that same time, by the way, which was such an eye-opener from coming from Ole Miss, on the stage, you know, Circle in the Square is an active Broadway stage, was a two-person play called Huey starring Al Pacino. So from Oxford, Mississippi, when my school day was over at Circle, I'd be walking up the stairs back to Broadway because we were in a basement, and Pacino would be walking down the stairs. Hey! And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, this is yeah, where I'm supposed I'm to be. I'm in the right place, yeah. <laughs> my goodness. I'm in, I'm um, in good company. Your beard hairs grow, you know, twice the speed when you're that excited. I grew, like, a beard that year. Um. It was just such an exciting time, you know, surrounded by New York, which was still kind of scary, you know. Uh, yeah, it, was I hadn't, it hadn't quite turned uh, at know, that I took time. lunch breaks at peep shows. Oh, I yeah. come back with I come back with sparkles on me. I remember in high school going to Broadway <laughs> plays, and I went to a Catholic high school, and <laughs> the, the teachers would uh, basically walk, and they, you weren't allowed. You could only stare at the back of the person's head in front of you. Single file. Oh, yeah, it's like peep show, peep show, <laughs> oh, yeah. peep show. It was it was definitely even when Pirates I of Penzance and then Peep Show. Yeah, it, it really like narrowed down and, and I think once DVDs uh completely went <laughs> dead, there's no more porn st- shops or like <laughs> the whole area is fine. That was the last <laughs> You know, you might have a couple of DVD shops. Uh, oh, and, no. And Giuliani. It's, it's like Disney World. Yeah. Oh, no. You, and then you once they couldn't... shut off traffic to Times Square, it was like, wait a second. Oh, yeah. What's going on here? And, you know, you have to – and to, again, at the end of my high school years, growing up in Princeton, we were one hour of a train ride away from when New York was at the end of, but certainly really, really bad. Yeah, And so we tell our parents we're going to a Knicks game because in the Madison Square Garden was on top of Penn Station. You take the train in, you walk up one flight, and you're in MSG. But we wouldn't go to the Knicks game. We'd pour out into 42nd Street. <laughs> and we'd come back without our shoes and with bruises on our calves. And we'd be like, the game was great. <laughs> it was really scary. And now, like, where we used to get beaten or lose our shoes is a Madame Tussauds. So go figure. Yeah. It, 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 look, look, Applebee's. Yeah, that used to be. Uh, Applebee's. A, you used to have a little stage with windows where you'd see a woman do unspeakable things with fruit. So, yeah. <laughs> Are you sure that's Applebee's, mom? <laughs> yeah. Applebee's was a bee who knew how to use an apple. <laughs> that's B. Arthur, actually. That's yes. Apple B. Arthur's. <laughs> Dude, Back that was nothing about working, you know, waiting on tables in New York was funny because I saw every celebrity you could ever see. It's amazing how uh, they can function too and, and truly not get that bothered in New York. No, and that it, was the thing. In New York, you're supposed to act like you've seen him. So only a couple of times did I let it get to me. John Ritter got to me. I couldn't I couldn't believe John Ritter had walked past me. One really let me down was Mark Gastonaw. I was a huge Jets fan. I had the starting lineup figurine of Mark Gastonaw, and sure enough, here he comes. Oh my gosh, it's Mark Gastonaw. I can't wait to tell him what a legend he was to me. And so I stepped out and I was like, Mark Gastonaw. He's like, excuse me. And I was like, whoa, I gotta get 
Uh-oh, that's a dog barking. Is that, that cheese? Is a dog. That's not cheese. My mom has like a 38-year-old dog that if he <laughs> smells my jean bottoms, he thinks it's time to get, eat something. I call him Trump Misha. His name's Misha, but I call him Trump Misha. Ah. We just went way off course. No, that's fine. I, I like <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's see. Where we were talking about, you went to school. Um, yeah. Did you start doing paid acting work while you were still in school, or did you? No, you weren't. You weren't allowed to audition. Hmm. Um, just because the work was so heavy, and and I get it now. At the time we're like, just let us see if we can make it, teachers. You know, we had such big egos. Um, but they were probably the, the, afraid the, you'd drop out and stop paying them. You, you would have dropped out. There's no way that the two could have meshed with each other time-wise. Um, but what was cool is the school, after this two years, set up a um, sort of a showcase for actors, two people scenes for agents. So I linked up with a scene partner who was arranging the order of the scenes because I heard – if you don't go in the first 10 scenes, the agents leave. They take your headshots, but they don't get to see you act. They've been there long enough, and now it's time for them to go. <sighs> so I placed us number three with the help of my partner in order. So they'd see the first person. They'd see the second group. Boom, we'd go. Like the, the number three hitter, right? You know, getting on base if no one else did for the cleanup. And, uh, and I was getting phone calls. There's about a week after that where you still have school and it's the first professional mix into the school. In other words, no one was talking to agents or anything, but that last week we were getting calls. And so you could tell that was the worst week of that schooling, by the way, because you'd walk down the hall, the, that, those stairs and you could tell who was getting calls and who wasn't just by the look on our face. How high their chin was being held up. Yeah, because we were all we were all one for these two years, getting to know each other all too intimately. And then we were either starting to get calls from people or not. Right off the bat. It was it was strange. It took the innocence out of that um experience. But guess what? I think that's why they layered in that one week just to show you, you know, it's not all gonna be um, a, a, a drum circle, yeah. you know, you're going to be out there on your freaking own. And that was exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. And I was just very lucky. I hit the ground running because of the timing of being contacted. I knew somehow innately to be myself in these meetings. Cause that can be very scary too. Like I've, I think I took a meeting with an agent and we're halfway through and I was like, I know I'm an agent. I I hate to stop us right here, but I've never had to go to the bathroom so bad in my life. And that broke the ice somehow with this agent. Just I was like, geez, Louise, where's the loo? Yeah. And he was like, oh, all you had to do was ask. And I think leading up until that point, I was like, yes, I'm Patrick. This is what I do. This is what I think my strengths are. Blah, 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 blah. You know, just the next guy he would have seen like, okay, thank you. By the time I was like, you know what? I got to go to the bathroom. He laughed. <laughs> I take this two minute break and I come back and I was myself. Does that make sense? And not because yeah. I, not because I had you know finally gone to the restroom, but because I took a breath. was being real right there in the room after 
you know, not feeling like that in those first few minutes. And honestly, that sort of mindset never left me after that. So I was very lucky. I booked, by the time I was going out, I was booking commercials to the point where you know, I worked in restaurants for a few months and then I didn't, I didn't have to anymore. I should have for my, you know, keep my head on straight. But money-wise, living alone in Manhattan, I didn't have to do it. I'd have three or four beer commercials, not beer, not at once. You know, I'd have a beer commercial and your handheld breakfast and oh, yeah. your what and your IBM, whatever it was, at once. Wow. And this was a couple of months out of school, paying everything on my own. Um, it was it was it was pretty cool. So, but, so you uh, you did like screen type stuff first or out of college. Um, first thing out of circle. First thing out, out of circle, circle. Yes, all on camera, and uh, very little stage. So, you know, which after a while, by the way, you sort of start to lose your 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 acting muscles a little bit because sometimes you walk into a room, you sign your name, you show them that your hands don't have any cuts on them, and then you hold product in front of camera and smile. Wow. You know, it's not like we're digging deep into character work, but. Um, it was so busy, you know, I'd have four or five auditions and this is when we had beepers. So you have to check your beeper and then go <laughs> take the subway down wherever it would be and get to know these casting directors. And that's what I did for, you know, nonstop for 11 years Wow! that went, that went by like a month. So I supported wow. myself doing it for yeah, 11 years. I think I did somewhere near. 40 national commercials. Wow. I was in just one film, but close to some films and those experience, you know, really close on some movies that could have, you know, been the big break and stuff. You know, in TV shows, pilots. I was in a pilot that got bought and turned into the movie Hancock. Uh, I was in an MTV pilot um, where one of the actors... <laughs> Got, we didn't do the, the pilot for MTV because one of the actors got the movie Blair Witch 2, oh. which might be one of the worst <laughs> movies ever yeah. produced. Now, yeah. she's had a cool career. She's been in Sopranos and all these sort of CSI shows. But sure enough, Blair Witch 2 uh, cost me my face on a lunchbox. I'm just certain of it. But these, this, that was what the experience would sort of be. You it know, feels. Was, it feels like um, with that kind of acting work, like you cannot, you cannot um, get excited for anything because it could be pulled out from underneath you, and it happens enough that you're just like, okay, what's next? Well, it's actually the flip side, and this really such, that, that's that's the perfect point. I went to an audition that was for a, I'll never forget it. It was for a foreign language commercial for a VW. And you got to understand, some of these directors don't want to be there. It's great. It's a great payoff for them. Right. But they don't want to shoot a Latino VW commercial. They're trying to make films with Johnny Depp. So they're like, oh, God, oh, boy. All right. And I bring in the next guy. And I did something. And they, they in the room, and this never happened, by the way. Even if you went into those rooms and just did horribly, would they go, thank you so much? You know, it wasn't like the type of rejection that everyone talks about. You just didn't hear anything and that was a rejection. But 
I remember being laughed at in room and saying, you know what? I effing quit. Not to them, but as soon as I leave the room, I effing quit. This and that. I quit. The whole subway ride home. I quit. Never going to do it again. I quit. I quit. I quit. And by the time I walk up to my apartment, I'd booked a UPS official. And so I learned, okay, you can have that I quit moment. Beat yourself up or on the flip side think, there's no one else that could have gotten that role but me. But then you have to forget about it. One You're allowed 30 minutes and then you got to let it go. And yeah. so, so you got to get all- really good at, at, at maintaining uh, um, your cool with rejection. Yeah. And again, these are things that you didn't learn in that school. You have to teach yourself to stay sane. And this was a person who's in a great position. You know, I wasn't struggling. I think to have these issues like, oh, I hope I got it or don't, meant that you were going out a ton of times a week. People would kill for such problems. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, and I knew that. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is a great opportunity who cares some dude laughed at a VW? It, if I had quit, like I said, you know, I might have not gotten that commercial that then turned into $40,000. Or, you know, and had all the girls from high school say, I did see you. You know, <laughs> Wait a it second. Was, I sat in math oh class God. with that kid when he showed up. <laughs> oh, this is 30 years ago. Or not, not 30, but 20-some years ago. And I still get that. That's hysterical. And, uh. Yeah, it's cool. But uh and then I did started to do a lot of stuff for MTV. You know, I really had very successful What what six- years were you at MTV? Um like those TRL years like um end of the 90s, early 2000s. So I worked there at 1515 Broadway. 1515 is where Yeah, where TRL was. I supported yes. I supported TRL um doing do you IT know Roddy work. Scott? Do you know a guy named Roddy Scott? No, I I might if I could, because there were so many people that like you dealt with. But you know, you besides the people that were on my team, like IT people, um, the people I supported were MTV News and uh, the MTV Studios and the MTV Store for some odd reason because it was right below the studio, and (laughs) so I knew the store people. I knew. A lot of the the tech people that were in the um, sure. in the studio, I knew like the makeup people. I would go down and, and hang out, you know, if I had a break and just sit and talk to the makeup artist. And I I when I tell you like there'd be a list actors in there, and I wouldn't know who the hell they were. Oh yeah. <laughs> just, oh yeah. We'd just be talking about whatever, and yeah. It, that kind of stuff. That that's the kind of place it was. Though, but I'm, yeah, I'm no just, one ever. What, what I remember is no one was ever wearing shoes. So like every <laughs> office was open. There are posters mm-hmm. everywhere. This guy would have been playing a video game, whatever. But everyone's shoes were kicked off, and they're walking around with socks, and their hair was eight ways to Tuesday. We used to get you weed know, delivered was, to the office. It was fantastic. <laughs> there was a delivery there. service of weed to the office. Yeah, this is in like 2002, maybe. Yeah. And you guys made like grilled cheese sandwich money. Like you definitely, they didn't, I know that Viacom paid horribly, but it was such an experience, such a launching pad for, for people too. It was an odd, it was an odd place. Um, I, I definitely, luckily I was working in a support position. So I wasn't part of like the production people. Cause they, yeah, those people, I mean, they'd lose their job like three times a year. 
it, yep. it was such a, an unstable place to work, but they get brought on like for uh, the next project. It, it was just constantly, you'd see people coming and going and you're like, okay, it's hard to get attached yeah. to anyone, but yeah. I was real, real lucky in that. And it's funny because the two people I had a real good connection with an MTV, one I went to high school with, his name was Roddy Scott. And then the other woman shared that name almost. Her name was Jen Roddy. And between, and between the two of them, either choosing me to do packaging for the VMAs mm-hmm. and then that same director calling me back a couple of years ago to do, you know, like a, a commercial for whatever their newest MTV means this type of thing was. While meanwhile, my friend Roddy Scott would be casting me in uh, – they weren't really commercials. They were promos for Osbournes and promos for all of these goofy things. So I, you know, there were some days where I was on MTV you know, just for snippets, but you know, four or five times a day. And yeah. that isn't where I was making, making money. No, was but that was just fun. <laughs> um, I then got really lucky – to get called in to start doing voice looping. And what that was, was uh, post-production work on TV and film. So somehow I got called for something and you go into these real fancy rooms and you finish off the sound for a TV show. So maybe I did a show called Ed or something. But if you do well enough, you get into the, the fraternity, these voice loopers. So did you go to sound then, one in uh, down, right? What does sound, sound one is exactly so like right. All the engineers in there were my friends that I grew right. up so with. So what is that? For, I feel like that's 49th and Broadway. I might be yeah, wrong. It was, it was like two or three blocks from, from, um, from yeah. And MTV. I lived 49th, 9th and 10th. And in fact, circle in the square was another one of MTV's buildings up where JFK jr. Had his George magazine for what the heck was that? Big oh, Black I know book. where that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I Circle exactly. is in the basement I had of that no building. Idea. It's it's so, so funny. I'm just I'm laughing because I'm sure at some point in that time period we had crossed paths. Just even if we had just walked past each other, and you 100. probably worked with Brian Gallagher or Mikey Howells or somebody over at Sound One recording some. Vo- they, they were the audio engineer, like just pressing record in the back or doing, you know just running cables to, to get a microphone set up for you. Right. And then, and even there, like some of those guys back there, I, I went to the gym at the crown plaza, which was right there in between MTV and, and everything. And I'd either be jogging next to Carson Daly or mm-hmm. when I'd go in for, by the way, strange dude. And, and, uh, <laughs> he was a nice enough guy. Or he was about eight feet tall. I had no idea. Um, or, you know, I would see a guy when I went to my first or second looping thing. The guy in the booth was a guy I knew from uh, working out at the gym. That's awesome. Hey, Billy, or whatever your name was. So it was kind of cool. And those types of things, almost like when I was saying, hey, Mr. Agent, I got to go to the bathroom, would break the ice. And then you could do your thing. Um, so I did voiceover for The Aviator and School of Rock and uh, analyze this and analyze that. And, uh, you know, all huge movies and then really bad ones too. And then movies you thought would be great and then weren't type of thing that I'm still today being paid for. That's awesome. Um, It's pretty awesome. Royalty checks are just, are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the residuals get a little, little low when you get, you know, to this level. Like I, I guess I did voiceover for a 
Catherine Zeta-Jones movie called The Rebound. And I think three people have seen The Rebound. <laughs> but about, you know, once every eight months, I get a two-cent check. What? Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, something like The Aviator, which is – The Aviator is 21 or two years old now, believe it or not. I'll get a nice fat aviator check, you know? So you never know. Right. That's that's the, that's the fun of getting paid for something you did 20 years ago. Even yes. if it's two cents, you're just like, sweet. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, no, it's barely worth the postage they send it on, which I find hilarious. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it speaks volumes for the union. They're still looking out for this dude who's long since living in, in South Carolina. His mom's telling him, you know, pick up the dog poop. So, so let's talk about you're, you're, you're doing, <laughs> uh, uh, you're doing all of this awesome work. You're kind of living your dream. You're, you're picking up all of these gigs in New York and somehow you ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. <laughs> so I'd yeah, like yeah. to know, um, what, what that transition was like. How did you, cause I know for a fact that that kind of work just s- kind of quickly, uh, slowly but quickly disappeared. In other words, those studios started closing down. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, places like Atlanta and, you know, started picking up a lot of the East Coast work because it was so much cheaper and, and, and whatnot. And so I, I, I imagine like a lot of that kind of work just moved all over the place as technology allowed people to to do stuff out of their bedroom kind of like i'm doing right now <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you're absolutely right but and and not to mention like right the amount of work in new york was dwindling because it was so expensive now if you think this is before streaming services mm-hmm. uh they were still trying to do web series you know and uh, which I was in a couple of real successful web series, but you, know, you might as well, they were there for zero money. But the, eventually the way would go to Netflix. So who's to say right now that you couldn't get 50 series living in New York again? But you're right. At the time, you know, there was like one bad Dan Aykroyd show that shot in town. Yeah. And an MTV and the Law and Orders, you know, anything over at Silver Cup. And then that was it. And it wasn't that it was drying up as much as the process is torturous. And so for all the times that I had to, you know, tell myself, oh, this is the new rule or that, like I was saying earlier, rejection wasn't in your face. It was more just the silence after the fact would eventually get to you. Yeah. And so I felt a little bit like broken at 29. I moved back to Princeton. That move alone allowed me some sort of ease. I was still auditioning because I was still being called for a lot, even though things were dwindling. And that's when I booked my best Law and Order. That's when I booked my best film. I was living 100% out of the city. Um, so it was a matter of me like tearing the Band-Aid. I think that would still be happening now if I was in Princeton. And it became a thing for me, like if I did get an audition and some of them were fantastic and turned into great things when I was living away from the city, had decided to move out away from this sort of torturous place, that it was a four hour round trip 
plus uh, getting in and out of the building just to say, hey, Amstel Light. And at some point I figured that's not worth it to me. And so I moved down to Charleston. My parents had bought uh, in the late 90s uh, a historical landmark building that had been abandoned. And they did research on this old church, uh, the Plymouth Congregational Church on Pitt Street, and brought it back. You, so this would be wait, the place wait, would, wait, wait. Did it burn down on them? No. Okay. No. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I had this weird freak out moment because I, <laughs> years ago, uh, I remember helping out this family that had owned a church on Pitt Street that Come burned on. down. Jeez. And I was trying to help them, uh, you know, salvage any of their memories off of their computers. Uh. And I was just like, what? The? When you said they had a church on Pittsburgh, I was like, no way. <laughs> oh, no. Your story is, this is a two-parter. Um, <laughs> on the next JWN on podcast. On the next, Patrick, the church had burned. I stood over the rubble. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I moved down here. My parents had, had uh, built this church into a home, and you know, my dad wasn't in the best of health. And uh, I'd been visiting here for years and during holidays and stuff like that. So I was familiar with the city and my brother, my youngest brother went to college here. At one point, I was so sick of living back in Princeton, but yeah, going into New York for auditions and yet working in a gym as a personal trainer, which was fantastic. And it was all too much. And I moved down here to be around my parents, which I'm glad I did. My dad lived just about another year or two after that. And, uh, and so now I'm here in Charleston. Uh, I personal trained, which was something I had learned in Princeton and New York that turned into my love for yoga here, did my 200 hour training I found my theater companies in town, which was quite a lot of shopping, if you will. Oh, yeah. Until I found uh, the place that I loved. And so here, without a lot of money in your pocket for doing so, um, after a year was I surrounded with my family and in a bigger place and, uh, you know, on the ocean. And I could have a big dog, which you can't really have in New York and New Jersey in these small settings. And was teaching yoga and I've done 18 plays since I've moved here. You know, it's been a fantastic experience. But it is not the livelihood that it once was. And um, and so there's the rub, you know. Right. Yeah. So you, you slowed down immensely, which it sounds like you kind of needed or, or were looking for. Absolutely. But now you're you're <laughs> in a situation where although – you might end up right. You might be in the right place at the right time. I, I don't know what your outlook looks like, but uh, you know, we've got um, Danny McBride's production company down here. They've already filmed two HBO shows here. They have been doing movies and, and things here and you've got Atlanta, uh, you know, only a few hours away. Yeah. I've actually made an Atlanta connection since this quarantine um, with the interest of going out for a pilot season I actually did a play at the Threshold Rep. I did Elephant Man where I was approached to be a series regular just from just from someone seeing that performance 
in a show that shot here for the audience network called Mr. Mercedes. I ended up not getting that part. But um, I am planning on being more active in pursuing the type of filming that they're doing out down here. And again, it was part of it was getting that some of those experiences out of my system. Um, and then part of it's some sort of the Southern laziness. I think of moving down to Charleston, like I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. It's well, such it's- a nice day. It's such a nice day. Um, it, it's hard yeah, to my- hustle here when you compare it to the hustle up there. Well, yeah, I think this has been a true test for creativity though. Um, if you're to take a role here, the stakes are so different. You know, they're not going to be your rent. So why do you take on a role in Charleston if you're stand to make, if any money, almost ridiculously small amounts? Um, you better have a passion for it. You better have fun. You better work hard. You know, this is the true test. You know, why, why what was our – I didn't think about making money when I was doing – our town or Kiss Me Kate in high school. I loved being up there and the experience. And what I think I missed for so many of those years trying to push product in New York was just that. So I've never felt more creative. And yeah, I think it's a great time for, since the playing field is leveled, there is so much streaming. They're shooting in so many cities because New York is ridiculous. Uh, I have the right... uh, you know, I have a pretty good resume and you, to jump well, right back into it. And my muscle is back. You have the skill set. You have this. My muscle, my love for it, my muscle is back. Right. Well, the skill set that you've built up over the years, when you're talking about um, just being on sets, dealing with multiple different types of personalities, doing the the voiceover work, and, and basically the ins and outs of the back side of production – Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like exactly all what, of it's that exactly stuff. what they don't teach you in those schools. Yeah, and and, and you so have the you classical willing, education, right? Are you willing to, when you get lucky enough to get on these sets, to have your eyes peeled open to soak in what works and what doesn't? And the two examples: my my first commercial was a print ad. My my first. I'll tell you a story real quick about my first print ad and then what was my first on camera. They're eye-opening experiences. My first print ad, we got to get there at 5 a.m. It was for secret deodorant for, for women. The lead singer was a woman and the band, you know, we were pH balance different, whatever it was. When I got in, the the woman for the ad was already there insisting that they play her music of choice while they put on her makeup. And I could see people <laughs> rolling their eyes. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is great. Now I can't wait to be in a magazine and stuff. But this is secret deodorant for women. Nobody cares. So this person wants her music played and doesn't like how her hair is done. And I made a mental note to myself, don't be her. Those people aren't going to want to hire her again at five in the morning. You don't want this person that wants their part on the other side of their head and can only listen to their music while you do it. And you're actually the one working behind the set. You know, the talent, sit in a chair and and shut your mouth. You're getting paid. So I remembered, okay, when I get on a set, be really excited to be there. Eyes open. When they ask you where to sit, you sit there immediately. When they put the part near your hair, you've never seen something better. You know, because guess what? You must it up when you get home. Count your money. 
And so the first on-camera commercial I did, first live-action commercial, was a Saturn ad. And it was a three-day shoot. I was the principal actor. I was the star, for lack of a better way. Actually, my co-star in that commercial, my girlfriend, is the mother of the lead dude on 13 Reasons Why. So that's another funny thing. You'll be like, I know her. I know this dude. I know him. Um, whenever you're watching TV, whenever. But anyway, I did a Saturn commercial. They shot like the more intimate stuff of me with the girlfriend talking about our car on a different day. The first day was outside with 50 extras and crane cameras. And I get off the subway and I see what looks like a Tom Cruise movie is going to shoot. There's so much people and stuff. And half of me was so excited. Half of me wanted to run back on the subway and forget the whole thing. Um, I saw a room that said extra holding and I had checked in with whoever I had to check in with and they're like, yeah, we're not going to need you for blah, blah, blah. You can go and hit up the food truck or whatever you want to do. I went, hit up the food truck and went and sat with extras, chatted, boom, this and that. When it became time for me to be needed, they were like, Patrick, we need you. And all the extras went. You're the principal? You're the principal? <laughs> Why were you sitting with us? I thought, oh my gosh, you know, because I'm going to be that extra tomorrow. And you're going to be the principal. And uh, so again, the first print ad, don't act like that. The second, you know, the real big on camera ad, I thought, I'm going to be like everybody else. Because all I am is the car commercial guy for the day. At night, I'll be sleeping alone. And no one's going to offer me a Perrier. Yeah. So, you know, keep your wits about you. And I think that that type of attitude was, first of all, not a put on, but it was deliberate and it got me a lot of, a lot of work. It got me a lot of work. Man. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I, the, the attitude is such a, um, a breath of fresh air. Um, I think the, when I, before I worked at MTV, I worked at an advertising agency and the people working production for commercials mm-hmm. were so much more, um, the attitudes were so much larger. They're, they're, they're miserable people. Yeah. Generally they, speaking, yeah. those are miserable people. I'll tell you, I did, I did a Thomas's bagel commercials with Charlie day and I did a few commercials with Charlie day and to the point where when we get on set, uh, Charlie and I'd be like, pretend we don't know each other because <laughs> we wanted all of our stuff to air. And, and we'd shot like three commercials in a row where we're both sitting on a couch. The one that makes it to air is Thomas's Bagels. And years go by, Charlie, you know, hits it big uh, with, with Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's a, he's a movie star. And he's on bef- uh, Tonight Show with Jay. This is still when Jay Leno was doing Tonight Show. And they said, Charlie, what was your worst acting experience? He said, Easily Thomas's bagels. <laughs> so I don't remember it because in the commercial, I fall down the stairs because Charlie drops a couch on me. I'm in a full body cast. So my point of view of that day is get there real early and get a body cast put on you. Charlie had to show up in cool jeans and we you know, just had to shoot. So I don't really remember his point of view. But anyway, he's like, yeah, I'll tell you what, Jay – the guy wanted to know if I really loved the bagel and did I really love that Thomas's bagels? 
I wasn't having to do that because I just had to be the guy who fell and was like, ow. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, I remember, I do remember that director, there were, what there would be was the client themselves. So whoever the Thomas people would be sitting in another room around uh, a TV set that was showing what we were doing when we, while we were shooting. And I'm telling you, they were sitting in a circle of six and they all had an opinion. I think Thomas's bagels looks better at one more t- turn to the right. I think <laughs> Thomas's bagels looks better with one more nook and Can one more. Can we give it a crab. Rembrandt lighting? <laughs> yes. So the director would run in, and before he'd give us a note like, "Okay, we're going to shoot this," he'd say something like, "I can't." Freaking Thomas's bagels, people! I'm going to quit as soon as this is over. Okay, guys, so we're going to do a shot. Blah 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 blah. And I knew, God, the stress the stress that this director was dealing with the, with the client. Oh, there's that Trump. Oh, that dog is straight Trump. Dog, you are straight Trump. I'm glad I have headphones on because if my dogs heard that, they would return. So you'd hear a stereo echo of that. Uh, yeah. We made the mistake of, of saving his life. And now he's all vibrant and wants to eat at all hours. Um, sounds like a good dog. Oh, he's horrible. He's horrible. <laughs> oh, I guess he, I mean, you didn't call him Trump out of love. <laughs> <laughs> His name's Misha. Sometimes, uh, I, sometimes I call him uh, King Jong Mish. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I'll tell you one thing about, about, and it's sort of jumping around. That's all right. One thing about, one thing about uh, Charleston and specifically a woman Keely Enright and her husband, uh, Dave Reinwald, who run that Wolf Street Theater. Uh, I love that place. Village Rep. Like, th- that's just a place that she's let me come in and say, hey, Keely, you know, what if we did this play? So for all, like, the cool things that were happening to me in New York, if I had a dream to play such and such role, I sort of had to put it in my back pocket because I was really, you know, there wasn't a lot of room or time to do those things. And as the years went by, I was losing contact with the people I could do it with. You know, people weren't yeah. surviving the acting pursuit at all. Right. Down and, here, uh, it's, not, it's probably not as uh, long-term for a lot of people. Oh, it, it, was, it was sad. You know, it was sad almost. And it's, again, it was sort of like, not like, hey, what happened to Larry? It would be more like two years went by, and I haven't seen Larry in two years. Well, you know, that's how it sort of how it went. Anyway, when I came down here, I had all these plays that I had seen in New York or all these ideas of things I wanted to do, and and we made them happen in this town. And, you know, we all made 30 bucks for doing it. But I'm telling you, it was, it was as equally, if not more, uh, of a, a sense of accomplishment. And so this town has lent me... That and more. You know, I'm scared where we are right now. What's right. what's happened? Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you why. What the the um, inspiration for this conversation? You know, last week I, I was talking to my wife, um, and I was like, you know what, I really uh, like just miss right now, and it's something that we had only recently in the last maybe four years or so kind of discovered is this independent theater scene. Um, in Charleston, and I'm like, I, I, you know, I really want to see a live play. I think yeah. it was because the Hamilton thing was coming out 
on, yeah. on, on, on Disney Plus, and we were talking about it, and I was just like, you know what, though? I really just want to see like a live play. Those are those are the best nights ever. So much better than going to a bar or going to a movie or going to something. It's so like it's it's just it's a beautiful intimate. experience. Yeah, it's intimate, but it's also like you feel like you're participating just by being in the audience. The energy well, you you're giving, you're getting back, and it's a, it's an exchange. Well, that's the only thing. That's the only reason I think it exists. If we did live theater and bless the people who shot Hamilton on a stage to get that feel, but you know, live theater to an empty crowd is, you know, it's like a, it's like detaf. Yeah, I mean, you know? it, nobody cares. But I, it's, yeah, it tastes I, like coffee. But man, you can go take a nap. In other that, words, that it Hamilton, is that, life. that Hamilton. Uh, First of all, the, everything about the way they shot it was amazing. Technically, everything about it, you cannot say a bad thing about it. The whole time I'm watching it, I was exhausted watching it, thinking like, oh, my God, these people do this or did this Five. every single night. And sometimes on Wednesday, they did it twice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, this is two hours and 40 minutes of not breathing like the pace is so breakneck the dancing the the acting the singing the performing everything's on you know it's so rhythmic and just everything like the scene where hamilton's son gets shot and i'm just sitting there like in tears watching this and i'm like they're in tears and they did this every night how the how the fuck does Ow. someone do that? Like, well, I think I think again. I was talking to Keely the other night, and we were like, "Oh, we miss theater, we miss theater." And I said, "Remember, because we don't did a play called Junk, and when you're backstage in the midst of doing this play, it's so serious." In other words, I think my I had one scene, and I was holding a yellow legal pad, and within two scenes, someone else needs on the other side of the stage. To be holding said legal pad for their scene. And I'm telling you, you've got, you've got however many seconds. And it's such a team effort and it's so intense and so live, right? No one's yelling, cut, the yellow pad didn't happen. Let's start. Let's start again where there's no stakes, you know? Yeah. Um, it was like a sprint backstage with <laughs> the yellow pad of paper to hand off. And when you're months review removed from it, you're like, oh my gosh, isn't that hilarious? But there's something to be said about the seriousness, the intensity, the amount of work, the teamwork yeah. that it takes. That that yellow pad has got to get into Kyle's hands in said time, or you know, it's a failure. Now, of course, well, someone in the audience w wouldn't go. That was a great play. Besides, the one guy didn't have a yellow legal pad. I'm out. <laughs> you know, no one would notice. The review just such, comes across and yes. it just says legal pad Every equals no. <laughs> Don't go hey, see junk. They can't even junk. get a yellow legal pad. They were 99 and 44 one hundredths there. Legal pad. <laughs> All I could think about was that damn pad. <laughs> but you know what? When I think about it, it's the polar opposite of someone sitting there in a chair wanting their music to be played while they want their hair to look this way and wouldn't know if I had walked into the room or not. Right. To, I'm going to sprint 
like Jesse Owens to get dude yellow legal pad. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, and that a couple of months later, we can laugh at how ridiculous that really is. I think I if it. people, uh, I think if people could equate it to something like pick whatever field you're in, and um, you know, if you're a runner and you're gonna you're you're training for this marathon, now you might spend twelve weeks getting yourself ready to run this marathon and you run the marathon and then the next day you do it again <laughs> and the next day you do it again and the next day you do it again. This intensity of like, it, it's, it's not something that I think most people understand how much passion goes into seeing a live play. And, and I really do. I, I, I miss it tremendously because you can't recreate it. Um, without going and seeing it live. You have to go see it live. And, and I would, I, I can't wait for this to be over because I, I feel like, you know, um, I, I feel like there's going to be a, an outpouring of people just needing some sort of creative inputs as well as outputs. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how much we've all, you know, definitely myself included, have leaned on the arts during this quarantine. Oh my goodness! Can I, you imagine? I, I know net. I know Netflix like it's my bedroom. I know every corner of the Netflix. I finished the Netflix. <laughs> found, the <laughs> and, <laughs> found the bottom. Found the bottom. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, you know, these are all people who are you know, pretending to be another person in a pretend situation. Da 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 dee. Or it's something great like the new Unsolved Mysteries. But whatever it is. And and uh, I, and then we're yeah. and then we're cutting art and we're cutting this and that and then wow. at night we're laying down to watch Netflix and then one doesn't jive with the other. Yeah. And so uh, my worry for live theater is that it won't it won't get that immediate chance. Well, uh, how, I mean, it's it's kind of going to be hard to come back quickly because who's you know, know the land? I'll, I'll be straight up with you. The landlords at Wolf Street, totally separate from the passion and the vision of Keely Enright or Dame Reinwald put into that building, those landlord landlords want 14 grand a month. And bless them, I guess that's a deal. But since March 15th, there's been nothing active in that building. You know, how could we possibly afford that? Right. So I think right now is a time to link up, and this goes in the theater world, in your dance world, in your business world, in your yoga world, whatever your pursuit is, to link up with people who are forward thinking. If this building isn't going to be our theater next year, where are we going to do it? You know, because there's also that sense, and I, and I get it, of, oh, our theater is going to be gone. Well, what are we going to do? Oh, our yoga studio is going to close. What will we do? No. All right. I think our yoga studio is going to close. This might be the next thing. You know, I think our theater is going to close. What about this building that no one's ever looked at in this town? Whatever. You know, it, we'll have to, if we're, if we're live up to our passion and our pursuit, then it's up to us to make sure it comes back, even though the government's doesn't want to help us do so. Right. That's okay for now. We'll figure it out. I'd rather people stay healthy. As long as it, you just said exactly what I was going to say. The people are the theater, not the <laughs> building. So as long you as you guys are here. alive, if we <laughs> in do that year. in front of an empty crowd, nobody cares, especially us actors. You're 100% right. It is a give 
uh, from both audience and and performer. If we're getting like that, this you have no idea what it's like to go backstage. I'm sure maybe you do actually. You've been a part of so many rock shows and intimately so. But when you go backstage and like they got scene three, did you hear them? That one lady <laughs> wouldn't stop laughing. We're on our tiptoes of excitement. We can't wait. We're going to do a either really fast <laughs> or a re- more likely a really great performance that night. And so, yeah, you guys almost have that dial at your seat to say, do we want to see medium average? Do we want to see it dialed up? You know? Oh, and I mean, it's a similar experience for musicians, you know? hundred, hundred percent. Because sometimes you're playing and you show up in the crowd, you don't know what's happened, but like there's just no energy there. And sometimes you right. just, you can't match it or it doesn't work. Those are just off nights. Um, and that could happen, I imagine, in theater. Um, oh, gosh. They're called I, Sunday audiences. We're like, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Why did we do a matinee? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. All right, so <laughs> let's – you know what's funny is I have this list of questions and like 99% of them you answered before I could an- ask them, which is amazing. You, do you want to do a quick style? Like, like I've got region. a couple – I've got a couple that we can do quickly. Uh, I have uh, one of my cheesy um, – here, here's one of my cheesy questions that I like to ask um, and not about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, he has a dog. His name is Cheese. Is this like your, your Lipton? This is your Lipton question? Oh, my God. Oh, look, the bad. dog heard dog. <laughs> oh, wait. Trump, Misha. I want all you oh, listeners to know that there's no That's dog. That's not cheese. I'm being abused by dogs. Help <laughs> me. All right. So this would have gone back before while you were in high school. Um, when you were in high school, where would you put yourself on the Principal Vernon from the Breakfast Club scale? Brain, athlete, basket case, princess, or criminal? <sighs> I'm going to put myself criminal. And mind you. Judd Nelson with I'm going to I'm going to be Judd Nelson wearing Emilio Estevez's jacket. <laughs> I was about to say mind you the whole point of the breakfast club is that nobody fits into the, the those things but Exactly. I, that's the whole letter at the end. Yes. So beautiful. Yeah. You know, that's a play I've wanted to do for years, but anyway. I think it would be a great play. It's all set in one setting. It could be a period piece. Yeah. But making a movie into a play is an expensive uh if it's something to like a story right. first, then you could do it. But man, forget about it. But I would be Judd Nelson with Emilio Estevez's jacket on. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. What is a class that you think should be taught in grade school? In grade school, K through six. Um, or to like up till high, eighth grade. Yeah. You know, before uh, high school. Uh, you could even throw in high school if you want. Okay. The American uh, education is missing this class and you're going to fix it. I think, okay, I'm gonna, I'll be general and I'll say a specialty class. In other words, where do you show your interest? Where do you show your aptitude? And that's where I lack. And what I do like about the idea, this is not a real great answer to your question. That's all right. But, there's, no, there's no bad answer. <laughs> sure there is. Um, you should have seen my blue books. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, I think something specialized. I wish someone saw the actor in me. And so that one class a day could have been that for me. Or for someone who needed more compassion or needed to understand history more. Maybe maybe not such a... How about this? I want to split my... A, a free play with with passion and interest. And in a general note, I wish that most history teachers wouldn't draw a line across the blackboard and start dashing Mesopotamia. Show me the <laughs> films. Show me what they listened to. Show me – let's eat what they ate. Um, well, you know, l- let me I'll, – I'll really – understand history more if i know more stories fiction or f- facts that took place in that era you know or, or 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 to really again hear their music to know what they ate to know how they slept if you draw a line across the blackboard with a dash in it you've lost me right i'll tell you what we had a history teacher in my high school and everybody remembered this fact and this one class that he taught uh and he would turn out the lights and shine a flashlight and he said Charlemagne was the light in the dark ages. <laughs> right. And, and everybody remembered that. Is boom. Everyone's interest is boom. And you know how we create memories in life is because there's too much to remember. Like, what did you wear last Tuesday? Are you okay. kidding me? No. Uh, and these are things, you know, you think we're so smart. We're so developed. But our brain is too much to compile. So what creates memories, they theorize, is the flow of adrenaline. And when the adrenaline flows, so imagine, oh, I was almost in a car accident or Billy hit me in the chin mm-hmm. or whatever it is. You'll never forget Billy almost hitting you in the chin. But when that teacher shone that light, why do you guys remember it? Because you perked up. And it, even if it wasn't a type of adrenaline to lift a car off a child, it was adrenaline. And that adrenaline stamps your brain. He also was the same teacher that ta- told um, the sophomore <laughs> class when I was a senior after our senior trip to the beach that, you know, Joseph Neenstead's got more hair on his chest than I do. Thanks. Yeah, and you're like, hey. That's information that the hey. sophomore class needed to know. They all remembered oh, that that's too. one of the most inappropriate <laughs> things I've ever heard. That I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, it was I'll a small what, school. I paid, I paid them back. I paid them back for you when I was smoking on the back of the senior trip bus. Um, you know, they just didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what to do with me. All right, here, here's here's a little bit more of a woo-woo kind of question. Okay, got it. What is one thing you've learned from your journey that you think would bring happiness to people who may not do what you're doing or have done what you've done? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think if you're going to pour yourself into something, there has to be interest passion, hard work in order for whatever said thing you pour yourself into is. I, from my experience, I jumped in and I had such blinders, some other things suffered, but never for lack of going after whatever I decided to go after um, with 100% passion and pursuit. And I think that goes for, for everything you could do in life. For me right now, it's, you know, making sure my tomato plants are doing okay. Does it have that same energy? No, but it has that same focus, interests, uh, uh, hard work. And when those things mix together, good stuff happens. Dude, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, all right, here's another somewhat woo question. 
Do you have something you used to believe but no longer do? Yes. That there's a good heart in everybody. I don't believe that anymore. I mean, I, I, that everyone I know what you're saying. You don't even have to say that. It's, it's yeah. very scary to, to, to no. look around and, and see how many I've learned people a lot. are. This has, been, this has been the greatest SAT test of all time. Can you not be a racist? I can raise my hand and say, yep, I cannot be a racist, teach. Can you vote right? I can raise my hand. Can you run your business right? Yeah. Can you socially distance? Yeah. Did you watch Joe, you know, Tiger King? Oh, my God, my hand is so you know busy because there's so many things, and it's not just COVID and this incredible, terrible racism that are country bouts with on the daily that we're dealing with right now you know is your neighbor the type that wears a mask when they walk by their neighbor that they know is elderly or do they not really care you know there's so many ways to fail this twist of 2020 and i've seen a lot of people fail it and i'm the furthest thing from perfect i love a corner store but you know i've seen so many people i just didn't think that our generation you and my our generation we tried woodstock it failed <laughs> but we tried you know we we had the woodstock that where, ended in violence <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yes but damn it if we didn't try twice and you know we were the actual generation that did just like our parents were in a car when we first heard nirvana's nevermind and things changed Oh, yeah. Like now these guys hear a Drake song and I, I can't imagine things change. Um, so it's just a different world. It's just a different yeah. world. I have, I have a really hard time with the fact that I think there's a lot of people that are either a selfish or stupid or a real even mix. That's sad, but I do think that. And I'm from New Jersey. So that comes with me. I want to say F yeah. you to, you know, every other guy. I'm still trying to hold on to the hope that, um, oh. That there's good in people. I'm 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 digging a lot. Uh, yeah, you're gonna dig to, to to Earth's core. And I'll tell you this. You know, I saw someone share something the other day. It was one of these. You know, I haven't unfriended anyone because of a different view that they hold. Can you share this? And I wrote I under it, F no. <laughs> <laughs> nope. You're if that makes you a good person, cool. I you know that's not how I'm rolling right now. I, I actually commented on – I wonder if it's the same person who uh, <laughs> we saw that post from. Well, he actually – the guy I put it on is from my high school. He oh, okay. took it down. He uh, took it down. So somebody posted that on my – it showed up in my feed. And I wrote, you know, I've actually un- – not unfriended, but unfollowed people I love, people I agree yeah. with because their venom is just as bad even though right. they're on the right side of morality, I can't, I can't take it in. I can't, I can't well, process that much hate coming from people that I agree with as well. Right. Like it goes 100%. both ways, not in a Trump, they're both good people, but I'm saying like that energy of just like F be these much. people, it's like, man, I, I, yeah, F them. Yeah, they suck. But you're not going to change not, them. Every every day becomes it becomes your thing. You can't you know, punch someone in the I face had. and accept them to to change their mind. No. Yeah. And I remember, you know, one of my siblings got got very anti-religious to the point where every there was all these postings that were anti-religious, and to the point where I was like, man, that almost seems like a religion. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, right? Yeah. You're putting so much stuff that's anti-religion. Isn't it, It's a religion. So, you know, don't go so far. You know, stand your ground. Uh, and I don't mean that in a stupid-ass gun way. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, because I'm from New Jersey, we don't F around like this. But, uh, but you know, but, but also you're right. Don't go so much where it becomes a thing. The tribes become the problem. The team sport of, of picking a side and you're all in no matter what. Yeah. And your it, actions yeah. will always speak louder than your words. Do you have to prove something to someone? Fine. You know, I noticed, and not to tout myself, but uh, at all, I'm, I'm two weeks before George Floyd incident, I was posting on my wall, there's a lot of white person lawn parties out here. <laughs> you know, and we're two blocks from a black neighborhood who can't have the same lawn party. You know, yeah. I'd be. And we should be pissed. And then George Floyd, two weeks later, I could feel it down here. You know, this town has a lot of rich history. And you can go into some areas of the city where the bricks have been maintained such that you could see fingerprints in the bricks. And those are the fingerprints of black men, women, children that were building bricks to build a wall to oppress themselves. Yeah. This is a this is a history you can learn a lot, you know. And so that's what I would say. If you're go- whatever your passion is, and if it is learning history, or if it is a theater arts, or if you love growing eggplants, dive in. Don't tow the water. Dive in deep. Excellent, excellent. All right, we're we're almost done with the uh, the, the the question, the quick questions. This one's a little bit easier, I hope. Um, <laughs> well, you know, what I'm saying it's it, this one. Is I'm a, a wordy dude. No, I I love it. it. It's great because you're obviously, and you know, what I'm saying like you're an active participant in this, and it makes it so much uh, so much more fun. So, do you have a book, movie, song, food, work of art, play, whatever it is that should be required for everyone to consume right now? Mm-hmm. Um, just one. <laughs> I'm not going to name. A, I, I, w- I wouldn't name a book. I think people who are right now, you know, for instance, trying to read book on racism, they're three years too late. And uh, and I commend them for starting now. That's cool. But again, you are who you are, and you have been who you have been. So I think everyone should. <laughs> What's a move? You know what? I, I almost hesitate because my acting teacher or my favorite woman in town, Keely Enright, who runs that theater would kill me. But right now I'm such a tip of the forgotten veterans of Vietnam. I think if you haven't read Born on the Fourth of July or seen the film to realize that an entire generation was lied to and then ostracized after that, if they were even so lucky to live um, and now are so old that we're ready to start losing them on the daily, like 10, 20 years ago, World War II veterans were, you know, I think you should learn about Vietnam, 1961 to 1975, and actually longer than that. Excellent. All right. And then here's my last question. Always eat gummies. Oh, sorry. That's I thought I knew the question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew the answer. What's the last food that you will eat? No. 
gummy bears. Red um, ones. Um, <laughs> cherry pears. Um, can you recommend or uh, people? Uh, can you recommend? I'm sorry. Blah. I can speak. Can you recommend people who inspire you that might want to be on this podcast? Or a person? Oh, yes. I, I've, I've said her name all too I, often. I like it. I was going to tell you You're, the song should have been Smells Like Teen Spirit because you, you've alluded <laughs> yes. to Nirvana many times. Um, but I've also talked a lot about a uh, woman, Keely Enright, and what she's done in this town um, – you know, what I think is so great, again, there's a lot of theater companies and a lot of them have people that, you know, pick the plays and then build the sets. But Keely Enright picks the plays, builds the set, directs them, puts them up. There's no one more passionate in town, no one that has a more interesting Los Angeles television history than my favorite human, Keely Enright. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Patrick. I think, yeah, that, I so think that's a great way to end this. Um, I, I probably could go on for two more hours. Um, but at a certain point we have to save, save some for the next time. And Trump Misha would bark. It'd be terrible. (sighs) I can't wait till, uh, you're, you've got a work of art coming up and I could say, Hey Patrick, you want to come on here and talk about it? Maybe we can do it in person instead of over the phone. And maybe you can bring in someone that you're working with and we can have a whole conversation. You know, real quick, I'll tell you, we're doing stuff right now. We're forward thinking. We're, we want to do stuff in L.A. We're doing stuff with name actors in L.A. We're going to make this level playing field even more level. And wherever it's going to show, I have no idea. But we're, we're after some good stuff right now, I will tell you. You, you know, I just watched um, Homecoming. I, I skipped on it when it first came out because I, I just wasn't in the right mindset. And I'm a huge Sam Esmiel fan because Mr. Robot was like my favorite show. Um and it's the one with Julia Roberts on. It's on Amazon yes, Prime. If yeah, you, I guess season two because I'm just now seeing it. Um, season two just came out this year, right? Because I've Janelle seen a Manet. lot of uh, advertising for it. Yeah, so season one I hadn't watched, and I it, I thought about it because I heard a podcast uh, with Janelle Monet talking about Homecoming, and I was like, you know, I should probably give that show a watch. And um, I watched the first season, and it was fantastic and then i like started you know as you might do if you like something you start looking up on you know reading up on it and figuring out what you know what was this all about and it was based on a podcast like it was a a podcast that was acted out and a story told in the podcast format and then it was adapted to screen and i'm like you know that might be something you know in, in this time you could use you can go back to an audio serialized thing and the production costs are literally like your laptop and a microphone. Yeah. And and paying, and paying you well. (laughs) Well, you know what I'm saying? I was in a a web series called casters. You can actually see me on in in episode six of casters on Amazon prime. And it was based solely on these two podcasters. New York times named it the quintessential web series. We didn't make five bucks. But what was cool about that series was they were all the podcast that would take place in the series was an actual podcast that would then get released. And all these, I just think it's such a great format. I'm so into it. And I've definitely learned more through my telephone than I ever did in college. And that excludes my acting school years. Because if I do find an interest in something, I love to dig deep into oh, yeah. it. 
And this is this allows you to do that. It's kind of like having school in your pocket, but no bell and no teachy. <laughs> oh yeah, and you can you can pause. You can go do what you need <laughs> to do. You don't have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although that got me. That, I think raising my hand in the bathroom with the agent made me hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's that's um. <laughs> very true. That well, that uh, probably was the 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 seed that maybe turned you into a really incredible yoga teacher because <laughs> you know, that learning how to take a, a moment and breathe that, 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 that being in the moment, that, that whole philosophy, it has, you lived it. You, um, it, it proved itself to you. Yes. Yes. And I think that's true. If someone, you know, if we're all in child's pose, but someone, you know, belches if you're not to say hey there nice one or something like that that's not being me now do i think every teacher should say hey there nice belch no but if <laughs> you want to take my class and you really and if i'm going to be 100 percent me i'm gonna i'm gonna notice that belch and that's part of my yoga class so yeah, <laughs> i'm not i'm not for everybody don't fart in patrick's uh yoga class he will yeah. let everyone know if in no, case I'll someone in say- the back missed it <laughs> No, I'll just say, hey, I think a duck signed up. You know what I mean? I'm not- <laughs> um, anyway, you know I love you. You're 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 such an incredible artist yourself, and you've been you've one of the coolest attitudes of uh, I've ever run into. So this was Thank such you. a pleasure for me. I was so excited to like the that I was like oh, I should ask Patrick, and then when you said yes to to doing this, I was like. This is going to be an awesome conversation because well, I hope it was, man. I hope because every time I see you, I wish I had time to actually get to know you even more. So, this has been fantastic for me. If 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 I'm the only one that ever gets to hear this, it was <laughs> worth it to me. But hopefully, lots of people will get to hear it. And um, yeah, and and then in a short time, well, short in relative terms, not in 2020 terms, um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we hopefully can do this again in person. Man, I'd love to. And uh, I appreciate all that you've done for me in this town since I've known you. So this has been a, a joy. Great. Thank you so much, man. Talk to you Thank soon. Thank you. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye.